0: Hi there. Thanks for joining us for episode two of Or We Could Change. As with our first episode, I'm piping in here to let you know that this episode was initially recorded in 2021. We decided to release these long-delayed recordings to let you in on our process as part of our overall mission. Some news and issues we discuss will likely be quite dated, but sometimes revisiting the recent past can give you a unique perspective on what's happening right now. We're excited to launch newer episodes for you soon, but for now, please enjoy episode two.
1: Wildfires, floods, storms, and droughts. We're seeing the evidence every day now. We can't deny that global warming is a crisis. We can keep going with business as usual, or we can actually start to fix it. We're trying to figure out how to tell the story of global warming so that it inspires big actions that meet the moment. We can keep changing the climate, or we could change. So one of the other main topics that we ended up touching on in the first episode was the concept of net zero, which, as Ali pointed out, is incredibly reliant on technology and specifically technologies that are lofty goals that may or may not be possible yet, but that a lot of people seem to hope are coming around the corner that are going to come in and save us. So we've decided that that will be our deep dive for this episode. I'll let you say it. (laughs) Will technology save
2: us?
1: (laughs) That's the one. Why don't we go ahead and go right into that topic? So, Ali, maybe you can start to help answer this for us.
2: Will technology save us? It's an undercurrent in the story of humanity, right? Technology is a part of human evolution, sort of, as we tell the story of ourselves, uh, the society and civilization. And so technology has always been there for us, helping us go to the next frontier, helping us overcome whatever challenges we've come across. But fundamentally with this crisis, I don't think technology is going to be the solution. It's going to be part of the solution, but it is not going to be the solution. It won't be our savior. Mm -hmm we'll need to figure out a way of how to use technology, but not rely on it as the crux to get us out of that, out of this mess, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it does. And it might be valuable for us to kind of lay out uh, some categories or maybe a bit of a spectrum on the different implications here, the different ways that technology could theoretically save us, like the different types of technologies, the different arguments. So we kind of Discuss this as a group a bit in our pre show planning, but why don't you go ahead and lay that out for us? What are the different ways that speculatively
2: technology could save us? Sure, yeah. The different types of technologies and how they can engage with us can be around behavior change, new energy sources, making things more efficient, or also helping undo the pollution that we're doing. These are all different types of categories.
0: What you have brought to the light for Aaron and I is that this whole technology will save us argument is very much becoming a mainstream idea. Correct?
2: Yeah. it's It's been like an undercurrent in terms of the story for humanity for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah generally. But like this specific one as it relates to climate, it's become like the thing that like the big, like the powers that be are like pushing.
2: For sure. For sure. Yeah. And a lot of the IPCC policies right now rely on new, uninvented technology that will right. solve a lot of the problems that we've created as part of the climate crisis.
0: So it's like this mysterious stuff that's yet to come is going yeah. to be the Hail Mary that pulls us out of this garbage yeah. fire, essentially. Yeah. Okay, well, I mean, it's a little, you know, for for those of us who have anxiety, like that is a little bit... uh not like not uh, stable enough to really hang on to you know like i don't understand how we can really all just be like oh it'll be fine it'll be fine like where
2: <laughs> the analogy i use sometimes is like you're in an airplane and one of the engines has failed and you can land the airplane um and so there's a clear path to averting the crash, mm-hmm. but people are saying, "No, no, no!" While you're flying with this crashing, burning engine, why don't you invent a new engine and <laughs> yeah. fit that in? That's yeah. sort of what we're doing with our climate crisis, mm-hmm. yeah. right? There's an off-ramp that we have available to us right now, but the promise, the dangle of technology, technological solutions, can push us on this path that is pretty dangerous in yeah. the end. Yeah.
1: So. I'm going to give the like kind of counterpoint, not because I necessarily believe this, but I feel like this might be one of the motivating undercurrents of why this has become such a popular sentiment, why so many people seem to believe technology will save us. I'm going to kind of quote Malcolm Gladwell here uh, when he talked about uh, the concept that smokers don't believe smoking will kill them because smoking has never killed them before. Right. And this feels kind of like the opposite. It feels like maybe a lot of us, by instinct, feel that technology will save us because technology has always saved us before. Yeah. And the most right. recent feels like maybe pertinent example of this would be with the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, from the time when it, it was declared as an international pandemic and state of emergency until speculation on, well, how soon can we get vaccines? What was it, like 72 hours from like, okay, we're in this pandemic a few days later. All right. So clearly like some big pharmaceutical companies have got to be like given billions of dollars so they can develop vaccines, right? And as it turns out, that worked for the most part. And when we look at the challenges that we still face as a society in managing the, the pandemic, which is still very much ongoing as we record this. What this speaks to, though, is that the technology did its part. The vaccines did get developed. They do work. Uh, we were able to tool up to be able to make a lot more PPE than we used to be before. Those technologies work.
0: But... But? Oh, f- I see where you're going yeah, with this. <laughs>
1: but the reason why we still have a pandemic a couple years later why we still have massive amounts of community spread of this virus, and that is leading to new variants and new dangers. The reason why, unfortunately, a lot of people died in the course of the last couple years is partly because of the social and political challenges, the issues around social distancing, the issues around people conforming to the behaviors or rules or mandates that are necessary for these technologies to do their job. So it's all well and good to have a vaccine, but people have to take it. It's all well and good to say, you know, you can halt the spread of this virus if you socially distance, but people have to do that. Right. And it's all well and good to say that if you pause or shut down the economy, that can give society like breathing room to be able to tackle these problems. But you have to actually do that. And you have to do it in a way that's fair and equitable and has the right uh, effects that you want without the undesired harms that can be caused by that. So, you know, the technology side of it, we we pretty much nailed it as a society. Like, I mean, pretty quickly, we got some of those things in line. The social political side. Wow. like Right. I know I think
0: divided. Yeah.
1: Canada, Canada handled it pretty well as far as countries go. And what do we get? A C minus at (laughs) best?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, that is like a great analogy, Aaron. Like I think that does like a really great job demonstrating the whole like point of that like technology, how it came in and did like a lot of the work, but then you know, there's other factors to consider, and it's very complex. We need some, what are some like examples as it specifically relates to climate? Like, do you have anything that like specific like leaders? Like I feel like Biden, for example, like talks a lot about this kind of, like he kind of espouses this mindset as well.
2: Yeah, I I remember a few years ago, I was talking with Bill Morneau. He was the former um, minister of finance in Canada. And he was talking about how he was convinced that we would innovate our way out of the climate right. situation. Yeah,
0: okay. right.
2: And so, what does that mean? We're going to invent new technologies to do things that don't cause CO two pollution, or that take CO two out of the air. And it it ends up framing the question in a way that focuses the problem on one thing, yeah. a technical problem, right? Yeah. CO two in the air, CO two generation. Whereas, perhaps, the problem is broader than that. Mm-hmm. It's, a, as Aaron alluded to earlier, it's a cultural, social question that we have yeah. to address, right? And by focusing on the technology side of things, we might not be actually addressing the problem. All we end up doing is coming up with creative solutions that work on the symptoms. Yeah. But don't address the root causes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And people have to embrace the solutions. And they have to, you know, have a sense of urgency to put them into place, <laughs> right? You know, um, and so if our leadership is not doing that, and if the public is not convinced either, then it's just kind of there as like some lofty, distant thing that none of us are really engaged in, I guess. Yeah. Um.
2: There's a there's a similar um, in the. I don't know what in the philanthropy world or something. There's 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 this story that's often told of like you come across a river and there are babies being thrown off a waterfall, at, at the bottom, right? And so, oh my god, I got to do something, right? And so at the bottom, you can create these contraptions that collect the babies, a trampoline or something. All I've these never
0: th- heard this before. <laughs> <No>. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, and, and so you can continue. do these things
2: that save them. But it's a
0: very uh, anxiety riddled.
2: <laughs> 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 I'm I'm probably mangling this right now. Anyway, it doesn't matter.
0: Continue, continue. Uh, I'm but just the, picturing the, the, it. The, the, the
2: real question is, well, why are there babies falling off this waterfall? Yes.
0: yes that is exactly. the question you should
2: be answering, right? And yeah. by focusing on coming up with solutions, and, and for sure we need to be doing something about yes. that, right? Because yes, that is happening. Yeah. And we need to avert that. But the bigger question is we need to stop that from happening in the first place. Yeah. Right, and the same uh, problem happens in the climate context as well. when we get too hung up on technological solutions, we lose sight of maybe there's something in the human story or in our culture that is putting us on this path mm-hmm. towards climate catastrophe, and that's something that we might need to examine as a society.
0: all right, so we we talked about the mainstream ideology of you know, technology will save us. Now there's an even further, there's people that take that a step further even, like it's almost a radical view. And that's what we call like the techno utopians. Yes. Like that's taking it even further. And, uh, you know, we've had this discussion amongst the three of us as to, you know, maybe that's more dangerous than actual climate deniers. Like, what do we think about that?
2: That is an excellent point, Bryn. And this is something that I've been thinking about a lot as well. Um, In terms of like the people that are aware of the climate catastrophe and what's going on, when it comes to the climate deniers, um, everyone is on board and it's clear that they're the opposition or they're, they're, they're an obstacle. But then when you come to the solution space, what should we do about it? When we focus too much on the technological solutions, but not address the root causes, we might actually end up creating a complex web, uh, a brittle solution that is going to lead to a worse crash because we didn't address that fundamental problem to begin with. Right. So what exactly is a techno-utopian then? Right. So this is a concept that is, I think, pretty popular in Western society. And it's predicated on the idea that technology to date has gotten us out of most of our binds. And so there's this idea that technology will somehow be the savior for us and will be inventing technological solutions to the problems that we face. So a techno-utopian is someone who believes optimistically that through some unforeseen innovation is the word they love to use. <laughs> Well, mm-hmm. we'll innovate our way through soon new technologies that will make this stuff go away, and we don't know what it is because it's new. We might have hints of what it is, but it's going to come down the line, and we just have to have faith in human ingenuity. We've always adapted in the past, so obviously we're going to adapt now again. Oh boy! And I think that's a—it's a pretty dangerous bit. I think that's possibly even scarier, uh, and you mentioned this, Bryn, than the denialists. Because at least the denialists—you know—those are the people that are a block to what we're trying to do, which is come off uh, a reasonable off-ramp for the climate catastrophe for most life on Earth. The techno-utopians acknowledge that climate is a problem, that we're in this catastrophe, but they, will ha- they have this crutch of technology. So we don't really have to make those difficult mm-hmm. self-reflection as to is, our, is a consumption culture the right culture?
1: Yeah, no need to end consumption or reduce consumption. No need to change any of the structures of our society. We can just let the technologies fix things.
0: It's sort of a version of toxic positivity. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Exactly. (laughs) That's a great
2: way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. Good point.
0: This is like a popular thing that's being criticized by a lot of people everywhere, and especially on the internet. Like the idea that everything's fine and don't question things because, you know.
1: So- I'm seeing everywhere in the press what feels like excuses to not undertake any sort of social change or or to have to make any sacrifices at all. So it feels like the techno-utopian solutions or like the really lofty technology will save us ideas are maybe tempting to people because there's this confirmation bias of like, see, I don't have to change my lifestyle at all. See, I can still have the you know the giant house in the suburbs yeah. and the five cars and whatever because luckily i'm being promised these great carbon capture technologies that are just going to magically suck all the co2 out of the atmosphere we can't do it yet but in like 15 years oh baby it's going to all get fixed up real nice <laughs> so i don't have to worry about what i do today you know i'll put in a couple of led light bulbs look at me i like you know i'm a i'm a flexitarian i gave up meat one meal a week right. so i'm part of the solution and these big lofty technologies are
2: going to fix everything. Is yeah. that sort of what's happening? Yeah, I, I feel it's one of those things that uh, makes us avoid those difficult conversations, right? We've become accustomed to a lot of these conveniences in our lives. But when you look at there, uh, there's something called the ecological footprint network um, that have been tracking the amount of consumption, the amount of forest, the amount of fish, the amount of resources in the world. And they've done a thing, um, uh, which is if everyone lived the way an American lived, we would need five Earths. If (laughs) everyone lived the way a Canadian lived, we need also approximately five Earths. If everyone lived like uh, a Chinese person, average Chinese person lives, we need two Earths. So it's not possible for us to extend our lifestyles to the entire Earth. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about it in that way, you end up with, are we overpopulated? Or do we need to change how we relate to the world? So maybe it makes sense for us to talk a little bit about a
1: few of the popular technology solutions that are being floated uh, from the kind of most realistic to perhaps the most like crazy and unrealistic. And you can give us a quick primer, alley on like, what do these things mean? Are they at all viable? Um, are we just being the party poopers here who are just saying that that we shouldn't rely on these things? But maybe you can give us a briefing on that. So, you know, certainly carbon capture, which I mentioned because I've read a lot about that lately. But
2: what can you tell us about those things? Sure, yeah. So one of the problems in terms of the climate catastrophe is we have excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And carbon dioxide has a very long half-life. It's it, If we don't do something about it, the natural processes in the earth aren't enough to pull it out quickly enough to take the temperature back down. So that, that that is why people are saying we need some technology to take that out. And there are a variety of different techniques. People have spoken about forests, right? Trees are a really good carbon capture, quote unquote, technology. But then where do you build, the, uh, build, <laughs> where do you plant those trees? What kind of are the trees going to survive over mm-hmm. time? What was that land used for prior? Is that land resilient in the context of forest fires and dryness? And then there are um, artificial technologies, which are these giant fans that people are building with um, specialized engines that process the air and they separate the carbon dioxide and they store it under the ground. And right now they've been using that to well, the the oil companies, a, a couple of the big projects um, in in throughout the world are funded by the oil companies, and they're using <laughs> that to pump the carbon dioxide into oil wells that are nearing the end of life to be able to bring out the oil and gas that is otherwise inaccessible. Yeah. It's this oh, crazy. Boy. It's the yeah. It's this crazy, crazy concept that's being sold to us as uh a, a solution. And and thankfully, like if you actually speak to the people running these projects, the the Canadian guy to his credit, he's like, this is not the solution. But he's doing it because he thinks it's going to be part of the solution. But the marketing people are turning that around. Um and uh like we would need thousands of these uh factories all across the earth and none of it has been proven to work at scale. And to date it's being used again to increase the pressure in these uh, old wells to bring out more oil and gas, which sort of undoes the whole point of the, the, the project. Another technology that a lot of people
1: seem to think will save us that I've been seeing in the press a lot lately has been nuclear power. It seems like the political dynamic around this is really strange and interesting where um, political forces or um, business or economic forces that for whatever reason have decided that they are ideologically hell bent against things like solar and wind seem to really like the idea of building more nuclear. And I don't know what it is about nuclear that scratches <laughs> the itch that they like, whether they just like the idea of like big centralized Power plants.
0: I just picture that, Homer Simpson and Sector yeah. 7G, you I, know? I, I, like, I just, I don't know. I know. I mean, <laughs> I've, yeah. I've
1: heard the argument that, you know, nuclear is 24 7. It yeah. works at night when the sun isn't shining. Right. It works on a calm
2: day when the wind isn't blowing. That's a big knock against uh, a lot of these renewable uh, electricity sources in that they're intermittent. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. So,
1: nuclear is not inter- intermittent. Um, and then you know, I feel like maybe there's also this inherent element to it where, again, it does function based on a resource that has to be put into the power plant as a source of fuel. And those sources of fuel can only come from selected sources. So it still feels a bit like something that can be centralized and controlled and where there's a, there's an element of political power in addition to electrical power versus like the solar and wind thing. It's like the, you know, the old analogy, like you, you, you give a man a fish, he eats for a day, you teach a man to fish and he eats for life. And there's this reluctance to like teach a man to fish quote unquote, when it comes to power, almost like, you know, if you sell a bunch of solar panels to another country, now they have the solar panels. They don't need you anymore. Whereas, like, you know, it's like the printer and toner argument, right. You know, with nuclear, right. like, well, they still need the uranium. They still need to maintain the right kind of uh, political alliance with you so that you're going to keep selling them the uranium because Canada and a small handful of countries can produce and refine uranium so that you can actually feed these power plants. But in light of events recently, looking specifically at Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what happened there uh, in the early days of that war that's still ongoing when we record this, nuclear is feeling even more scary to me than it did a little while ago. And that's here in Ontario, where we've been very reliant on nuclear power for decades as our main source of like base power in Ontario. And our particular power plants here have a very high reputation for safety, Something about it now just feels like... Uh,
0: it feels more apocalyptic to me. I don't know. Yeah, it may, I don't like it.
1: Proliferating more... <laughs> am nu- I
0: naive? Like, am I... Well, yeah. Uh, th- like, th- there's a... Go ahead. I, I don't know. I, I just, just need to feel better about nuclear.
1: <laughs> just, yeah. I feel like, on the one hand, a little nervous about proliferating more nuclear power. Right. Even if it's with good intentions and having to deal with this, with the safe disposal of the waste and things like that. And also, I'm concerned that, like, even if you take those issues aside, that building nuclear power plants takes a very, very, very long time. And based so on our are, first episode, faster than expected, sooner than expected, we need solutions that we can deploy like yesterday, not things that require 10 years of research yeah. and debate
2: and approval. So these are all excellent points. Um, and I think we shouldn't dismiss nuclear power out of hand, right? Fundamentally, we have to decide as a human civilization. We need electricity, we need energy, right? Uh, To be able to live, what type of lives do we want to live? And it comes back to that question, is this a technological problem or is this a cultural, philosophical problem at its core? Um, If we look at our current energy consumption, um, renewables, well... Fundamentally, we need to move off of oil and gas, Mm -hmm. right? And so we need to look at all the different options that are available to us and we need to create a sort of a cost-benefit matrix and evaluate them. And um, one of those things is like, okay, well, what do we do with the nuclear waste? How quickly can we build these plants? What happens in the case of war? What happens if our society falls apart? All of these things are very important to put into that calculus in terms of what are we going to Mm -hmm. end up doing in terms of transitioning off of fossil fuel-based energy sources, right? When you look at the problem from a technological point of view, a technical point of view, we have uh, human civilization needs to uh, consume a lot of energy to do a lot of things that we do, right? Transportation, heating, uh, agriculture, all of these take energy. And uh, what we want to do is move away from the polluting energy sources into cleaner sources of energy. There are some problems with the renewables in terms of the intermittency, how do you provide a reliable one? But then there are also problems with nuclear, right? If we are in a crisis and we need to act now, most of the nuclear projects that we are talking about would take decades to build. Is that fast enough Mm -hmm. to make an impact? And what I would like us to have is an honest, sober conversation With an explicit matrix of all these pluses and minuses, Mm -hmm. without prejudging based off of that, I don't want to say that uh, dismiss it out of hand. Um, There there are some pretty cool uh, ideas that have come out, which is like reuse nuclear waste or uh, nuclear weapons, right? Decommission nuclear weapons and use that as fuel. Well, that's a great idea. Different types of plants. Yeah. Immediately, that sounds great. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, (laughs) I guess my question is: Is there like a brain trust somewhere, or like, uh, what's it called? Like a think tank that's tackling these things that are putting together these matrix, these like like uh, complex. Uh, analyses, as you mentioned? Like, is this happening? And why isn't it, if it isn't? I,
2: okay, that, that is a great question. And to be honest, I'm not aware. Yeah. I, I would hope <laughs> it is. But too often, huh. it's a, it, be, it gets mixed into the society that we have as a capitalist society, which is, yeah. right? Once someone is invested, they need yeah. to have their technology win, mm. right? Yeah. And this becomes a problem when we talk about market forces being the solution Mm -hmm. to our climate crisis, right? It becomes not about necessarily the best solution for humanity as a whole or Earth as a whole. Yeah. But the best solution for the people that are invested in that thing that they're pushing forward.
0: Yeah. Right. Capitalism strikes again.
2: (laughs) Mm. So
1: I think maybe in terms of our process, this is a thing that we can kind of build on as a conversation over time in an area of important research I like the way you put that of, like, let's step back and objectively evaluate all of these possible options and and compare the, the pros and cons yeah. of different things and talk about them in terms of not just, like, through rose-colored glasses the way it sometimes feels that policymakers do, right. where they have their preconceived bias toward one or the other. Like, I've mm-hmm. noticed in Canada... You can pretty much divide up our political parties based on the one that likes oil, the one that likes nuclear, <laughs> right. the one that likes solar
2: and wind, the one that like and, and it, <laughs> they all have their team. So to, to, to build on that as well, like, so it takes money and time to research yeah. new technologies, right? So is that money and time better spent on developing better solar panels or better uh, batteries? Or is it better spent on accelerating decommissioned nuclear weapons? And and the, the other part is, yeah, that's a nice idea. Is the US, China, and Russia actually decommissioning their nuclear weapons, or is it just a nice story as propaganda for this mm-hmm. to go forward? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And I've also read, and you know, I don't have a good source
1: on this, but you know, often I think on this podcast, we're gonna talk about various things that we've heard this or that, and I think these are just starting points for further research and what we're going to ultimately do is yeah. build on these ideas or questions and and look for verified sources on right. these various topics and because what what you're listening to now is kind of the the pre-production phase of a documentary uh-huh. in a sense. So one thing that I've I've heard about as a concept is on the conservation side in terms of reducing our energy need. I think a lot of people where they jump to as a conclusion is I'm going to have to give up my car or I'm going to have to live in a different place or like lifestyle changes that they as individuals are going to have to make. But I've also read that a lot of our energy use is pure waste from a structural standpoint that we could potentially like. So this is an area where no technology won't save us, but where it might be a piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Is that. Our power grids are, for instance, inefficient. So even through smart grids and battery technology and decentralization of energy, I've heard that we could cut down our energy consumption substantially. And that one argument against nuclear and in favor of things like solar, even though they're intermittent, is that if you have a solar panel on your building or in your neighborhood, the power doesn't have to go very far. If you have one big nuclear power plant serving a massive distance, there's a lot of power lost over that distance, going through different stages of transformers and voltage changes and line loss. Whereas with wind and solar, because it can be way more decentralized, you combine that with a good grid technology and energy storage, and suddenly you can reduce the number of megawatts that you actually need,
2: even at current lifestyle levels yeah and this com- comes back to the fundamental question that we had which is is our problem a technology problem or a cultural problem and i, I don't recall if we spoke about this last time jevon's paradox this is a paradox that has been did we talk about it last no time? no do tell so J- yeah
0: let's get into it
2: <laughs> jevon's paradox was a um It's a concept that is in economics, and it occurs when technological progress or government policy increases the efficiency with which a resource is used, but the rate of consumption of that resource arises due to increased demand. So what is this in our context here, right? Imagine that we come up with a new technology Forget even nuclear power. Let's go. We, we we come up with like this magic technology that solves our problems and increase the efficiency that you're talking about there, Aaron. Um, are we then going to create new demand mm. and spur new industry and more consumption? Right. Or are we just gonna work with what we have? Yeah. And what's happened over time sure. is we don't uh actually reduce We develop new markets. We develop new ways of Mm -hmm. exploiting that efficiency gain. And this is, it ties back to a presentation. Um, John Sturman, he's a professor at MIT Sloan, the MBA school. And they developed this climate modeling tool called En-ROADS, E-N-R-O-A-D-S. And we'll put the link into the show notes. Um, And they had a little lever and you could see what would happen if you were to actually come up with nuclear fusion or come up with these different types of technologies. And in the end, it had maybe a 0.1 degree impact on the climate because the problem is so much bigger than this one technical issue. Mm. And that goes back to the thing. Do we have a cultural problem in terms of how we view our relationship with the earth? Or is it just simply a technical problem? That paradox you explained, I hadn't heard that term before. Jevons paradox.
1: It reminds me of the concept I have heard about with respect to expanding a highway, where if you build a bigger highway, if you add lanes to a highway, it doesn't fix the traffic problem. Because if you... And we're actually... This is a thing that's happening in Ontario right now, where our current government is debating expanding and building Mm. more highways, where if you add lanes to a busy highway... Maybe for a small period of time, you get a bit of a relief in traffic. But what happens inevitably, and apparently there's evidence going back to like the beginning of the car that supports this, that what happens pretty quickly is that demand goes up and more cars end up using that route and traffic goes right back up to where it was. And ultimately, the only way to reduce traffic is to get people less reliant on cars. And this is where it goes into this social and political question of, You know, transportation, for instance, has become so political that you have people who are like on team car and people who are on like team mass transit and stuff. But I feel like to some extent, it's not presenting this story right. Because even if I was talking to someone who drives drives a car every day, they live in the suburbs, they drive to work, they're never going to ride a bike, they're never going to take public transit, they do not like those things, they are very committed to their car. And that is their lifestyle. If I were having a conversation with them about this, I'd say, yeah, but listen, you should still be cool with your tax dollars being invested in mass transit and bicycle lanes, because even if it's for your own selfish reasons of wanting the best driving experience, the more people who shift to those other modes of transit, the less traffic you'll be stuck (laughs) in, the less money you'll spend on gas, (laughs) that no matter who you are and no matter your bias investing in those technologies yeah. that will get
2: some people off the roads benefit everybody but this is this comes back it's a, actually an excellent illustration of this problem of is even the transportation problem the problem what right. i mean by that is like do we want lives where you have to spend an hour commuting to work or not? <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. COVID showed us that work from home works for a lot of people. Doesn't work all the time. Not,
0: doesn't work for everybody. Doesn't but a, work for everybody. But a lot of people can do it. Yeah. But, but
2: even, even, even if you have to go to work, yeah. right? Why are we building our societies in a way that require these long commutes? Yeah. yeah right? I Is agree. that the problem as opposed to building more... Uh, highways uh, uh, or public transport. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good Um, point.
1: So with this whole debate between whether this is a technical problem or a social cultural problem, it feels to me, it's always felt to me like one major piece of evidence supporting the fact that this is much more of a social or political or cultural problem is the fact that it seems like there are many technologies that already exist that are not really being used to the fullest extent they could be. That if someone in a position of power, if someone, whether it's at a big company or in government, really feels like technology is the thing that's going to save us and that they are, I guess, somewhat of a techno-utopian, they should really like put their money where their mouth is and actually deploy the technologies that already do exist. Not just talking about the fantasy things that, might work 20 years from now but like actually you know retrofit every building that you can to provide better insulation and reduce energy use or build high speed electrified rail so that you don't need to have as many uh flights and stuff like that or uh you know building solar at the fastest possible speed that you could as opposed to the whole thing of like nah do we really need it and just continuing to like kick the can down the road so like Isn't that just proof that it's not
2: a technological problem? That's exactly, yeah, exactly it. Like, think about the food um, hunger today. I guess let me pose this question to you guys. Uh, Do we have enough food right now to feed every person on Earth? Does the Earth generally today produce enough food for everyone? I've heard conflicting thoughts
1: on this, but one thing that I've read, I can't remember the source, was that technically, yes, we do, but a lot of food is wasted. Yeah. So there are like the have and the have not countries, basically, and right. in the have countries, upwards of fifty percent of our food is wasted. And if it was properly distributed, then the places that don't have enough food resources would have what they need. So it's more of a greed and or distribution problem than a than an absolute quantity. Exactly. Issue. Yeah. Is that
2: true? Yeah. 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 Uh, I I've I've read a lot of the similar things um, that you're mentioning here. But a perceived wisdom um, in, in general is that we don't have enough food and there, ah. we need more technology hmm. to allow us to grow more food, increase the efficiency of food growth. Where mm. the problem isn't that. The problem is distribution. Yeah, it, it's also about what types of food we choose to grow and yeah. what the resources are and what segments of the humanity we're serving as part of our agricultural practices. Um, The flip side or connected to that as well is um, on heating that you had mentioned. Uh, I had an opportunity to talk with a professor here in Toronto about the Toronto Municipal Building Code. Um, And so Toronto has a four-phase plan to have buildings that are being built uh, be climate um, resilient um, and green by 2030. We're in phase two of phase four. And it's going to take us until 2030 until we get there. Germany has already rolled this out um, (laughs) 10 years ago. Wow. And I was talking to him, well, why don't we roll it out like next year? Is it like really complicated? Because you have to educate the builders. You have to educate the architects and all the people involved in that process to be able to build buildings according to this code, right? So it's not something you can just snap your fingers and you can do it tomorrow, right? There's a bit of leeway. Does it take 10 years to actually do that? And I was, I was asking him, does it? And he's like, no, you can actually train people in about six months or maybe a year to get these best practices. What is blocking it is there are people invested in current building codes and it's going to cost them money. <laughs> and that's what's stopping there Toronto. There <sighs> it is again. Right? So it's yeah. not a technology problem. And think about this. We're going to continue building buildings that are not going to be to code for the wow. next eight years. And then we're going to have to retrofit all of these. Leader. Come on, <laughs> right? That's it's yeah, so, so it's typical. Not a technology problem. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Wow. Interesting. Okay.
1: And so the last thing I want to ask about with the uh, the deep dive topic here is what about like the Bill Gateses of the world who are saying that technology will save us? What about these so called uh, thought leaders and billionaires and influencers <laughs> and the people who have a big platform? they seem to think that technology will save us. I mean, I don't know if the maker of Windows 95 is the person (laughs) I personally trust, but do these people have something
2: to contribute? They absolutely do. But are we giving them too much of a platform? And what worldview are they bringing to the table? Right? Uh, He recently published the book last year, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. And he spent millions of dollars promoting this book Mm -hmm. and he got a lot of publicity around it so he's the type of person who can be a trendsetter right he was on talk shows uh morning news broadcasts all the newspapers reviewed his book and one of the concepts that he introduced and and the book was okay actually i thought it it wasn't it wasn't good (laughs)
0: <laughs> and Are you going to be saying... as smarmy as Aaron with the uh, Windows 95 comment? Well, like, so what he one of
2: the concepts that he had in that book was he talked about a green premium as okay. a block to why we're not going to be adopting greener solutions. And what he basically took as an unexamined premise is that the way that we look at the world today, the capitalist calculus is a given. Right. So if I can do something dirty today and it's cheaper than the correct way of doing it, I'm going to choose the dirty option because that's just the way the world is. I need to innovate. So within that current system to bring the cost of that cleaner thing down. And until I bring the cost of that cleaner thing down lower than the dirty thing today, I'm going to continue using that dirty thing. This then takes us back to that question. Is this a technological problem or a cultural problem? If the logic of our system is telling us we would prefer suicide versus saving the world, maybe the system is broken. Yeah. Maybe the logic is wrong. Yeah. Right? You need to re-examine your premises, right? If you run the numbers and the numbers tell you, let's continue killing the earth, may- maybe the model is the problem. Yeah. 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 I yeah. mean, I've heard that argument
1: too. I've also heard it both ways in the sense of Uh, The idea that now the cost of renewables in at least in some parts of the world actually is as low as the cost of dirtier sources of energy. And so the fact that we're not deploying massive amounts of solar panels in really, really sunny places where it actually is potentially cheaper per kilowatt hour of power than burning natural gas is because of lobbyists and political uh, blockages. That exist, so you know it's a proof that it's not a te- another way of proving that it's not a yeah. technological problem because it actually is cheaper. But yeah, to your point, like the fact that if we're just waiting for it to be
2: cheaper, there's something wrong with the system. Right. To your point earlier, do the billionaires have something to contribute? Well, I I, I believe Bill Gates that he actually cares about this. I don't think he's this evil mastermind who's trying to, but he's invested in the system. The system yeah. has made him a winner. Right? right. So he's going to try to work within this existing system to preserve his wins and yeah. he won't promote solutions that might make him suddenly a loser because he invested in something. And the other part of relying on market forces and comes back to um, technologies. Once you invest in a particular technology, it might turn out your technology isn't the best from a purely scientific or a purely human or best for Earth perspective. But because you've now spent a billion dollars and you have this big bet, you're going to keep pushing for that. Right. And that might work against the interests. And that further feeds into the narrative that the denialists use. Well, hey, look, these people are going to be making billions of dollars off this. We can't trust them. Right. The big green energy. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's Mm -hmm. like,
0: it's just a a big, it's a question of like just decoupling the tech from capitalism. Like, it's just like taking those things, you know, taking them apart.
2: <laughs> yeah. And, and 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 at the same time, like, capitalism has a benefit in terms of motivating people. Yeah. For some people, uh, the, the profit motive is a big one to, quote unquote, innovate and to push through new ideas. Though so it's not the only way of doing things. Uh, we don't necessarily want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, I mean, maybe I wouldn't mind capitalism to design toothbrushes, right? (laughs) Things that don't matter, I think it's good for. But things that have fundamental impact on values and things that we can't put a price on, right? The ability to swim in a river, the ability for a species to live. I don't want to put a price on that. Yeah. That is not a place where the capitalist motive is perhaps the best suited to come up with a solution. And as yeah. a society, we're not having a good conversation about that. We're relying too much. And perhaps this is an, another episode, right? Is capitalism or market forces the right solution yeah. to climate?
0: Yeah. I mean, we're having the conversation, right? So we are. I I mean, it, it, it's it's a very complex like issue. Like I think ultimately when we've drilled down to it, like Aaron. I think illustrated it really well earlier when you just said the line, you know, it's like the missing puzzle. It's like, it's a piece of the puzzle. So tech is a piece of the puzzle in this giant jigsaw puzzle. That is this crisis. You know, it is like an important piece. It's going to have a big impact. It's like that piece in the middle that has, Like, you know, it's like a central part of the puzzle that we're going to have to, that's going to help put together the sunflower or whatever it is that we're trying to. (laughs) Okay, I'll stop talking about puzzles. But (laughs) anyway, it it is like a huge part, but it isn't everything. Like, it isn't everything. And we have to like really watch the way we talk about it. We have to like use these things, but it's more about the larger societal and political shift that we all need to make. And I guess like this is going to be an ongoing thing that we discuss is like, how do we influence that? Like how, how do we like push for the right leadership that's going to get that shift?
1: And if you look at the grand scheme of things, us as a species, you know, what makes humans so special? You know, there's a million species of animals on this planet. Why are we the ones who ended up, you know, making podcasts. (laughs) What, What chain of events led us to advancing as a species to the point where we have the ability to sit here and have this conversation right now? I mean, this conversation is happening because of technology. Technology has always been a part of our growth as a species for hundreds of thousands of years. But when you look at the whole history of that, Homo sapiens as a species We use tools, we build and use technologies, and that is how we've kind of built our whole civilization. But the bigger question, when you look at history, isn't what technologies could exist. It's always been about what tools we choose to make and how we choose to use them. It's never been about, can we make a hammer? It's always been about, if we make a hammer. What do we hit with it, right? Yeah, and it really feels like this climate crisis issue just goes back to those basic first principles of our interaction with tools as a species, which is that we can, you know, dream about what technologies might exist one day. We can talk about speculatively the technologies we have and how good or bad they might be, but also at the end of the day, it's like, what are we choosing to do? What are the social cultural societal decisions that we're making to use these things. So in closing, will technology
2: save us? I mean, it's going to be part of the solution, but it's not the solution.
1: Okay, but I think we've brought up a lot of little subtopics that are going to lead us in the yeah. direction of things that Lots we're of going <laughs> to Yeah, things that we're going to need to research further to learn more about the dynamics between yeah. the te- the various technologies that may or may not exist or may or may not work in the future, but also like how we use them, how we deploy them, and how much of this is really like a cultural problem. And so just within that umbrella, we're going to be researching a lot of things about how this is a cultural problem. I think it's time for us to do the news. All right. We can talk about a few of the uh, trending stories and topics.
2: Yeah. um, I mean, there was one study that came out, one article that came out recently about uh, genetically modifying cows so that they are more resilient in a climate future or a climate disaster future. So the new story is uh, the FDA approves the first CRISPR cows for beef. Genome edited cattle were bred to endure climate change and their offspring will be used in meat production. And it reminded me, I was at a conference a couple of years ago uh, by the government of Ontario for the future of genomics. And they had brought together people from different segments of industry. Uh, My background is in healthcare, but they had people from food as well. And they were talking about climate because people acknowledge that climate is real. Um, And there's this individual who was the head of an institute out in Saskatchewan. He was talking about how they're investing a lot of technologies in making genetically modified organisms that can survive harsher weather. And like on some level, yeah, you need that, right? That's going to be part of the solution. But if you think that is going to get us out of this mess, you've missed the whole point, right? (laughs) And that comes back to this whole thing that we're saying, technology is part of the solution, but it's not the solution, right? If you only come up with crops that can withstand droughts and heat waves, you're not addressing the thing that is causing the droughts and the heat waves. Mm-hmm. And so this this cow article is exactly that, right? Yeah, it's, it's a neat technology and we might need it. <laughs> and the longer we don't do things that address the root causes, we're going to need more of these techno fixes. But they're just going to be band-aids after band-aid uh, without addressing that root cause of what's causing those babies to fall down the river.
1: Right. And in some cases, it sounds like maybe even the technologies could cause more harm than good because on a very basic level like if you were to say hey we now have this new breed of cow that can better withstand climate problems that is going to then distract or prevent from the perhaps more important mission which would be getting people to eat less meat let's mm-hmm. say so it becomes an excuse to maintain the current system and kick the can down the road so maybe the innovations actually harming us whereas you know if you were to believe any of the so-called benefit to a market-based economy or a market-based or capitalist system it's that if something becomes too expensive people will use it less if something become like if those externalities need to be part of it in order for a market to work so if you really if if someone out there really believes in markets you have to understand then then that sometimes means things need to fail sometimes If there is a product that is causing more harm than good or uh, is going up in cost because it's harder to do that thing or make that thing because the planet is changing, that price needs to accurately be built into that product. And if that means you use less of it, you use less of it. So if the cost of beef skyrockets, buy less beef. If the cost
2: of oil skyrockets, buy less gas. That's a market. (laughs) In, In this particular case, The cattle were bred with climate change in mind and they have extremely slick short hair, which is said to help the animals cope with hot weather more effectively. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I've got a couple of headlines that
1: I can read here. So one is Russia's war on Ukraine, renewed talk about Canada's, quote, ethical oil. That's in the Toronto Star. Then in BBC News, this is a more international story, but still about Canada. Canada pledges to help countries stop using Russian oil. Those are just a couple of sources, but this is all over the press right now. So with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the war that's going on right now as we record this, this talk about sanctions against Russian oil and gas and the push by some, both domestically here in Canada and globally, for Canada to pick up some of the so-called slack as a result Uh, has renewed this debate over the concept that has existed for a long time that I put in heavy quotes, ethical oil. And the way they define it as ethical oil is basically oil that comes from a country that's not a dictatorship or autocracy or something like that.
0: Oh boy. It really has (laughs) nothing
1: to do with the ethics of the way the oil is produced or the result of burning it. It is purely like the politics of the country that it comes from. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there are opportunists who seize a moment like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm looking at uh, Jason Kenney, for example, uh, who is the current leader of Alberta. And so this idea, though, of um, this moment and what comes of this, you know, the one side is like, We cannot immediately flip a switch and stop using as much oil as we're currently using. So, even people who, you know, this is the common sentiment that I've been reading, which is that even if you in the long term want us to get off oil or reduce our use of oil, it's not something we can flip a switch on in the next week or two. Mm -hmm. So, as a short term solution, as long as you are going to need oil and gas, isn't it better that it come from a country like Canada? Than a country like Russia, while Russia is under the leadership of Putin, and the flip side would be, or could this moment be seized on to apply pressure to the system in a way that results in using less oil and gas? To say, okay, this emergency has occurred, this particular supply has been cut off, so I guess we'd better learn really quickly how to cope with using less.
2: Yeah, and there's something to build on that as well, which is the same way that you can't turn a switch and reduce oil consumption, you can't turn a switch and increase capacity. So you then need to invest in new pipelines, in new infrastructure to service that demand. And that locks you in on long-term production, right? So if you're building this new refinery, this new uh, well, this new pipeline, you're expecting it to operate for 10, 40, not 10, probably more, right? 40 years to make your money on that. So you're locking in long-term emissions in that same way. Wow. So that wouldn't be good. I did hear one, uh, I can't remember where I heard this,
1: but the idea that some have proposed, like, even just based on the expediency issue alone, you can kind of end the debate on ethical oil, at least as it's being proposed in relation to this war, because if really this is an emergency and you just need a solution fast, then the fastest solution is uh, to impose stricter speed limits and things that would cause uh, a substantial drop in car use.
2: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Actually, the uh, IEA uh, recently published something. Uh, It was in the Financial Times. They had called for driving restrictions and air travel curbs to reduce oil demand. That's it. I think that's what you were thinking. Okay. Yeah, we'll add some more info on that into the show notes. But they had like some exactly what you were what you were suggesting, Aaron. Reduce speed limits. Have more pedestrian Sundays in cities. Do little things that reduce consumption as opposed to increasing uh, production capacity.
1: Right, and those are things that could be in in theory implemented almost instantly. It's just a matter of the social and cultural and political it. will yeah. to do exactly. so. Exactly. Prioritizing. Okay, Bryn, maybe you have a happy, positive news story to counterbalance the doom and gloom <laughs> yeah. of what we've been talking about. I
0: mean, that was what I set out to uh, do. Um, and I guess I sort of did, but I think that I... Um, and this is now like a process thing. I'm going to nerd out a little bit on process here. Um, yeah, I think I need to spend more time on this because I and and, you know, my former uh, media literacy professors from my undergrad would be proud right now. But I'm realizing that I need to, like, look at multiple sources and how different sources just kind of like what you did earlier, Aaron, are framing the issue and framing the story. Um. Because then I, I like I kind of went down a bit of a, a rabbit hole and I don't know what the conclusion is. But basically the headline that grabbed me was that um, the Empire State Building and its associated buildings, so within the um, Empire State Trust, like, real estate trust, there's about 15 buildings. um, they They have now switched to wind power. And what's very confusing and unclear is some sources, like, you know, are saying that, oh, it's entirely wind powered, And then others are saying, oh, no, it's just the exterior lights. It's just the, you know, a certain like, it's not what completely powers the elevators. They're still on the, Hmm. uh, the, um, they're still on the power grid. But so it's very confusing because, like, some sources are, like, talking about it. Like, it's this, like, incredible thing, which it is. It is that because it is a symbol of, oh, look at this, like, juggernaut of a, uh, like, symbol of American like industry is making this big move and other uh other companies and other buildings and properties can follow suit that is the great part but the other part that's confusing is that there's like all these other conflicting sources i looked at um multiple articles and i don't even want to get into I, i'll i'll add the different um articles that i looked at in the show notes the problem is i can't conclude from what i researched that it's fully wind-powered and that it is that exciting a thing. Like, <laughs> it almost feels like it's great, it's awesome as a symbol, but it's also, like, a symbol that's inherently uh, tied to capitalism as well. So it's like, I don't know how to feel about it. Yes, it's a positive story, but it's also confusing and weird, and there's, like, layers to it, and I feel like it might be something that I have to look into even further and take, to. It's like...
1: Right, and and I guess there's a bit of a potential for a bandwagon jumping issue there, yeah. where it's a company that says, "Hey, we're going to attach our name to like this wind power thing because it makes us look good." On the flip side, though, when it's a you know a, a prominent, iconic site like that, then yeah. it does become a symbol that might inspire more people to talk about it as as right. a thing. And so, if it gets a lot more people talking about Renewable energy as a source of energy, and if it gets a lot more people aspiring to have that be the thing that powers their cities, yeah, then as a as a symbol, it does have that value, regardless. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I I think it is a positive story.
0: Am I just too cynical now and like unable to?
1: <laughs> no, I think I I, th-
0: I just think I need to dive deeper into it. I think this mm-hmm. is like a little bit of a breadcrumb. I think I feel like this. Uh, this particular story is like a to-be-continued that I'll I'll uh, come back to in the next episode.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's good to have that critical lens.
0: Yeah.
1: And in terms of cynicism, honestly, like I had this thought earlier where to me the techno-utopians sound like the most cynical because it's reliant on technology that don't exist yet or cannot be really implemented efficiently yet because... When it comes to the idea of social or structural change, behavioral change, changing our society, they don't think that's possible. That argument from Bill Gates as to like that uh green premium, green premium. To me, that's the most cynical thing because it's like you're saying that there's no, there's just no way that we can do the right thing until it's as profitable as doing the wrong thing, and. That's not giving humanity enough credit. I think that we are capable of better, but we need to be hearing a lot less propaganda shouting in our ears that we're not.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great Great point, point, Aaron.
1: Our final segment, we're going to call Next Steps, but this is a purely process discussion where we're going to talk about where we go from here, what might be the next episode that we do, some of the areas that we're going to research.
0: I'll bring it back to the the very beginning of the episode where I, you know, made kind of a quip about how this podcast itself has to me seemed like it was going slower than expected later than expected. Um and it's it's true. I was joking but it is true like I myself was feeling a bit overwhelmed um because this is a very very big topic. Like it's hard to understand like yes, we have our framework of okay, we're going to talk about this week we're going to talk about uh, will technology save us? But like just diving into the research itself, it is very, very, um, overwhelming. And I, you know, Aaron and I discussed this amongst ourselves and we were kind of thinking like, you know, what are the things that grab me? And it's like, I can hyper-focus and do tons of research on things that only very specific people care about, like true crime. Well, it's popular right now, but like, I can spend hours like hyper focusing on that. Um, you know, like pop culture. That's something I always find very easy to engage with and understand, and know exactly what direction to go in. Um. So yeah, I guess like something that I wanted from you, Ali, is like, is there anything that is like super like salacious and like scandalous? that uh, i can like get my little hands dirty and like research and <laughs> like is there anything that's full of intrigue that you could just like just point me in the general direction of like i think i do want to revisit this whole um empire state building thing because i have more questions than answers so i think that is one direction but i'd love like another like like kind of intriguing breadcrumb to like follow.
2: Sure. Uh, there are a couple and you can maybe I'll, I'll talk about a few and pick one that resonates for you. Yeah. Uh, there's this whole idea of greenwashing.
0: Great greenwashing. Yes. Yeah. I know about this. This is uh, yeah, this is good. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, and so that's the idea of just putting on a green stamp of something without yeah. actually doing the thing. Right. Right. It's and, and there, there's a really great image that I saw a while back of like, uh, paper looking, uh, water bottle that mm-hmm. on the outside, it looked like cardboard. and Then when you cut it, it was a plastic bottle <laughs> with, right. so yeah, that's, yeah. Like, <laughs> it, that, that's a great uh, visual, um, yeah. example of this. Um, other salacious things, uh, Greenpeace recently had a really nice expose of one of ExxonMobil's, um, execs talking about how they influence uh, policy, specifically in the United States in that context. So they posed as a recruiting agency. (gasps) And uh, yeah, Channel 4, uh, the station in the UK, broadcast the the Greenpeace um, documentary on this. Definitely worth taking a look at.
0: Oh my gosh. And then,
2: So the, the oil industry has been spending billions of dollars over the past several decades, spreading myths and disinformation. Um, Pretty much following the exact same playbook as tobacco did. First with denial, then doubting the science. Um, Are humans actually the root cause? And the new part is it's too late. We can't do anything about it. So might as well just enjoy what we have left. Mm -hmm. That's another angle. And then the other one um, which might be um, of interest to you is the role that advertising plays in this. And in, it's in the sense that a lot of the cultural decisions or the cultural norms that we have today are not set in stone, right? Yeah. The, the association of masculinity with meat consumption is something that emerged in this past century. Mm-hmm. The emergence of a wasteful consumer culture is something that was by design in the 1950s by plastics execs, executives.
0: Yeah.
2: So these, these are all, these are all, Definitely things um, that could be worth digging into okay. more. So that's kind of like the association between cars and freedom. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. on the flip side of that, and we might have mentioned it last time, um, in France, in advertising, when there, uh, there's a new law where when you're advertising a new car, within that commercial, you need to put a prompt for people to consider biking or walking instead. Wow. So that's a way of flipping it on its head.
0: That, that's all really good. You given me some good breadcrumbs, my friend. So uh, I think the first one, I think I'm going to follow this uh, story about the Empire State Building and then probably this amazing-sounding Greenpeace documentary. I think that's the next one, and uh, we'll go from there. How about you, Aaron? What are your next steps? Yeah,
1: um, so coming at this from the perspective of a documentary filmmaker, I've always gravitated towards situations where I can connect a present day issue or problem with a uh, historical precedent, or try to understand how we got to where we are today. So, in this episode, we've talked a lot about the future. We've talked a lot about technologies that exist now or might be coming around the corner, and will they save us or not? Sounds like not. Um, but I'm also fascinated by the past, and 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 just to bounce off of what you just said, the idea that the things that we do, the way we live our lives are not just a given. You know, They might be driven by advertising. They might be driven by cultural changes in society that maybe evolved naturally. But whether it happened organically or whether it was driven by uh, a particular company or a particular ad campaign, it's not the way things have to be. And so I've always been fascinated by historical timelines that kind of take us to where we are now and allow us to see that we could also then do things differently i've been especially fascinated by this phenomenon where i've noticed that when i research a lot of different topics they lead back to the 1980s as being this pivotal turning point in our society and i'm i'm working like on a grand unified theory of where we went wrong or went off the rails in the 80s as a society but it definitely connects with the climate crisis and with things like Conspicuous consumption and advertising and you know globalization as it affects uh, consumption and consumer goods and as it affects like financial markets and things like that. but is there a particular uh, direction you might point me in that uh, you think would be a
2: valuable historical exploration there was there's one uh, study. Or uh, paper. It was in the Journal of Discard Studies, and it spoke about how we became a consumption, wasteful-based culture. Uh, and it talked about how in the 19th, it was in the 80s, it was the 50s in this case. Okay, <laughs> uh, the uh, the plastics execs were like, we need to put a plastic garbage bag in every room or every house, uh, and it was a way of increasing the market for oil. And a lot of, if you talk to people today, a lot of people are like, well, there's this consumer demand, there's this consumer demand. And the question is, is that real consumer demand or is that a manufactured demand by the companies trying to sell their products? And so tracing the history of that um, in terms of a lot of the things that we, again, we take for granted might be something worthwhile. I don't know if that's too overlapping with what you're doing, Bryn. I don't think so, but that's one. Another one would be the echo chambers that the billionaires set up, and this relates to the next episode that we're talking about. Um, so, for example, the Koch brothers—they uh, and there, there's been a number of um, journalists that have investigated this. They fund university uh, departments. They also fund think tanks, and they fund news mm-hmm. outlets. And so what they yeah. have is they have um, one of their, the university people on their payroll will come up mm-hmm. with a study or a think tank on their payroll with come up with a study that supports their point of view that then gets reported by a friendly, uh, a friendly news agency. And then it goes into this echo chamber and that's a way that they shape popular discourse. And so uh, that playbook almost certainly is being used in the climate. So, I mean, well, so they are in the climate sector as well as the, some of the most polluting industries uh, that the coke uh, industries are, are in. They've been blocking environmental regulations and worker regulations for for decades. So that could be another thread. to, to That might be more in to. Britain's wheelhouse of a political <laughs> intrigue or scandal. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, okay. you know.
2: There's a climate organization called 350.org. And that name, 350, has to do with 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That was what we had previously said was the safe limit for CO2. Today, we're at 420, mm. 415 to 420 parts per million. So we've blown way past that. Similarly, the reference point that is used for temperature used to be um, the 1700s, and it got shifted to about the 1800s, the, the late 1800s, the early 1900s. That one is a good for a good reason, which is our temperature records are a lot more comprehensive at that time point. But something to be careful is when people talk about how much temperature has increased, what is the reference they're using? Are they using 18, the 1880s or are they now using 2000 as the reference of this is how much has increased? Hmm. And that framing goes a long way to how big is the problem and how noticeable is it? So the
1: framing of the crisis keeps shifting like mm-hmm. a moving target. And our framing about our social norms as to how we live our lives as a society is a moving target, where whatever we're doing right now is presented as, you know, it's like Orwell 1984. It's like whatever we're doing right right now, this is how it's always been. This
2: is how it always will be. And this actually reminds me of another bit, which is the normalization of loss. And this is something to do with the short lifespan of humanity, right? Us today, we have no recollection of what was normal in 1900, right? The great flocks of birds that would make uh, New York be night during the day, be dark during the day, because they were so numerous. Today, you don't see that, and it's normal. That's also something worth talking about and, and investigating more, right? Because like this, the, the the fact that like in rivers they were so overflowing with fish that you could like just put a net in, you would get fish. And today, you have to like go with like special sonar or whatever to figure out where they are. Mm-hmm. And that's normalized because we don't have people that have lived that experience. It's just a story mm. that we tell ourselves. And it's, it has to do with like the short nature of human, it, it, the short duration of human lives and how a, for alas a lot of the things that are real, we have to experience firsthand. Mm.
1: Okay, that's good. Because that, that's what I really find fascinating is kind of the stories we tell ourselves Mm-hmm. That convince ourselves of how we got to where we are now, or what is normal. So, okay, this is this is a thread for me to pull on. Okay, so
0: <laughs> so, so something that you know has come up, I think it came up in our previous episode, but it's just come up in our uh, chats that are offline. Uh, is this like idea of these these things that you bring up, Ali? Like the I have this incredulous reaction half the time, where I'm like why don't I know about this? <laughs> like, this seems like a big deal, you know? Like, why don't I know about that increase from 350 to now for, you know, what was it? For?
2: Or 415, 420-ish, like, yeah. Like,
0: why is that not on main, like, mainstream media? Like, why isn't that anywhere? Like, I, I just, you know, there's so much, there's so many things that are just like these shocking, like, revelations that keep coming up. So I feel like that, is, you know, I've said it a lot, so I think it it kind of warrants its own <laughs> episode because I feel like there's probably a lot of people out there that are listening that feel the same way, that are maybe like earlier on their journey of learning about all of this, like myself.
2: Yeah, if things are so dire and so yeah. urgent, why don't we know about it? Yeah. Absolutely. So there are these gatekeepers in terms of how we learn about the news. And within the climate community, there are some people that are like, The news is too bad. We can't tell people. And if you give them bad news, people will disconnect and not engage. And so there's this paternalistic attitude that some people have. Um, And then within the news media itself, people don't like talking about bad news. Uh, There was the new Netflix movie, Don't Look Up, where you saw someone that spoke the truth got shut out of the news, right? They wanted someone that was saying something chirpy. And uh, there was also that TV show, uh, The Newsroom, a while back. And I don't, there's this famous clip that in the climate community is, is played over again and again. And it's the actor that plays Toby from uh, The Office. I'm sorry. <laughs> Apologies to him. That, that's how I ever know that actor. But he goes on.
0: I don't, I, <laughs> I don't remember his name right now.
2: <laughs> he goes on this uh, five minute rant in a new segment. He's playing an EPA spokesperson and he's like, we're doomed. We're doomed. Uh, And he goes on this five-minute rant and we can play a clip, perhaps. The latest measurements taken at Mauna Loa in Hawaii indicate a CO2 level of 400 parts per million. Just so we know what we're talking about, if you were a doctor and we were the patient, what's your prognosis? A 1,000 years? 2,000 years? A person has already been born who will die due to catastrophic failure of the planet. What did he just say? Um, And these are stories that the common perception is people don't engage with and you do not let these people on the news. Um, And then there's also just conflict of interest in the news media in terms of, yeah, where are their uh, sources of funding coming from? Who are the companies that are advertising on these stations? And then who are the people that are entrenched in the current status quo? So if you have an honest conversation on how quickly we need to act, they would stand to lose from that.
1: Wow. Okay. So there's a lot to this. So we
0: found our next deep dive. We found
1: our next deep dive. So the next episode, we're going to explore. Why don't we know more about this?
0: So until next time, like, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, I'm Bryn Burney.
1: I'm Ali Yosemite. And I'm Aaron Yeager. And climate change is everything, or whatever we're calling this podcast now. <laughs>
2: Or We Could Change is hosted by Ali, Aaron, and Bryn, with audio production by me, Eckhart.
1: Please help us grow by leaving us a review and sharing this with your friends and fam.